Hello, everybody, and welcome to the uh, NDISC Spring Speaker Series. We're lucky to be joined today by Professor SCM Payne, the Sims University Professor of History and Grand Strategy at the US Naval War College. She received her BA from Harvard, her MA from Middlebury, and MIA and PhD from Columbia. She's the author of five books, the editor of five more, most recently, Quills to Tweets, Modern China and the Japanese Empire, all within the last five years. Um, in my opinion, there's no finer scholar working in diplomatic history. She's a model of research clarity and perspective. She's also a great all-around person who I want my kids to grow up to be. So she'll be giving a one-hour presentation today on the geopolitics of continental and maritime power. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sally Payne. Well, thank you so much for having me. It is just such an honor to be here. And that was an over-the-top introduction, gross exaggerations, but never mind. Before I get going, I got to make clear to you, the ideas presented here are those of the author, me, not necessarily of the U.S. Government Department of Defense, U.S. Navy, or the Naval War College. So if you don't like something, complain to me, not to them, and I'll be in much better shape. Um, I thought I would share with you some of the high points of what I've learned over the last 20 years working for the Navy in the Naval War College. I never anticipated I'd wind up working there. And then I wind up learning things that I never anticipated learning and they turned out to be important. Uh, as, by way of explanation, I started out as a normal graduate student doing Russian history as in my major field, Chinese history as my minor field. Asia took over, had to learn to read Japanese as well. And then I realized that when I came to the War College that um, I had been learning about two great continental empires, but at the War College, um, they are studying maritime topics and the case studies revolved around the United States and Great Britain. And my husband also got a job at the War College. We, neither one of us knew anything about the Navy. So he got me to co-edit a bunch of books about the Navy, different naval operations, peripheral operation, uh, blockade, commerce rating, et cetera. And I learned things that I never expected to learn. And then US Naval War College is the only institution to study the prerequisites for and the strategic opportunities of maritime power. And this country is a maritime power and it's amazing how little of us know about it. So I'm sharing today. And without further ado, I'm gonna get going here. Um, and here you see sea power meeting land power on June 6, 1944. This is the Normandy invasion. Uh, maritime power, powers are the exception, continental powers are the rule. Maritime powers, if need be, can defend themselves primarily by sea, whereas continental powers cannot. And therefore, if you're gonna, if you're a maritime power, you probably had better have a proficient navy and a land power, you're gonna be trouble without a proficient army. And these differences have profound, not only military, but political and economic ramifications as well. And I will go through these with you. This country began as a typical continental power and it invaded Canada twice in 1775 and 1812. Britain won those things. And then President James Monroe proclaims his Monroe Doctrine, which is atypical continental power, spheres of influence, stay out of my backyard doctrine, telling the Europeans stay clear of the Americas. And uh, President Monroe also straightened out the border with by negotiating with the, uh, the British Empire in the North in 1818. And then he wound up uh, with Florida by negotiating with the Spanish. But the United States, unlike a typical continental power, preferred checkbook diplomacy. 
And so when Napoleon Bonaparte was running short of cash, that's what happens when you try to beat up absolutely everyone. The United States made the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. That's how we get the central United States. And then when Tsar Alexander II was running short of cash, a perennial problem in Russia, that is when the United States bought Alaska, Seward's folly, the supposed folly of the Secretary of State for wasting money on a place like Alaska. But when the checks were rejected, the United States took a typical continental power approach, which is massing your armies, which is what happened to Mexico in the Mexican-American War of uh, 1846-47, where the United States gets the Southwest. And so the Mexicans accept the next check offer with, offered with the Gadsden Purchase, which gets the United States, Tucson, Arizona, among other places. Um, but uh, meanwhile, if you, uh, the longest insurgent, in fact, the longest war in American history, and also the longest counterinsurgency in American history was fought against the Native Americans. So when people tell you the stuff in the Middle East is the longest war, it's nonsense, it's this. The United States Army defeated the last Native American tribes who put up an absolutely bitter fight, but by 1890, uh, that was over. And uh, Americans had a name for this foreign policy. It was called Manifest Destiny, the idea it was America's manifest or obvious fate to control a good part of the Americas. And this lovely painting here, it, it sits apparently on the Western sta staircase as you enter the chamber to the House of Representatives. And it's usually referred to as by its politically correct title, which is Westward Ho. Well, this is the real title here. Westward, the course of empire takes its way. Back in the 19th century, Americans were an empire, proud of it had beautiful paintings like this one painted commemorating it. But in the late 19th century, a different ver, uh, view about what kind of power the United States ought to be emerged from this gentleman, Alfred Thermahan. He is by far the, uh, the most per famous person connected to the Naval War College where I teach. He was a captain at the time, later became an admiral. And he looked around the world in his day, 1890s, when he's doing his, his big book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, and said, you know, the origin of power and position in the world isn't about continental consolidation. It's really about all this wealth from trade. And he argued that there were some prerequisites to being a maritime power and following a maritime security paradigm. And here they are. Prerequisite number one is you need to have moat. You need to have sanctuary from attacks so that you've got oceans insulating you from problems. Secondly, you need a really good internal transportation grid to get the goods out to market in peacetime. Thirdly, you need um, reliable egress by sea so you can get the Navy out in wartime. And then you need a dense coastal population, a commerce-driven economy, and then stable government institutions promoting commerce into making this whole paradigm work. Okay, if I look at these things and apply them to China or Russia today, well, there's no moat. Each one of them, well, the two of them have more uh, neighbors than any other countries on the planet, and many of their neighbors aren't particularly friendly. Uh, Russia has a, a lousy internal transportation grid. Neither one has reliable egress by sea. They're both much more susceptible to blockade than their likely competitors are in the event of a war. And as for commerce-driven economies, Russia's never had one. 
And China under Xi Jinping is in the process of privileging the public sector and putting the clamp on um, the private sector and busy ar arresting some of their most prominent businessmen. Oh, and neither one has stable government uh, institutions. The litmus test for that is a regular and transparent transitions of power and leader for life does not remotely qualify for that one. So China and Russia, they may have a maritime ambitions, but they don't have the geography to play some of the games I'm about to tell you today, uh, to, uh, about today. I, those are Mahan's ideas, but there was a counter argument to Mahan. It actually came a generation later from this gentleman, Sir Halford McKin, uh, McKinder. He was a, a Briton and a very distinguished man. He um, had founded um, entire, uh, uh, the Oxford School of Geography. Uh, he was one of the really important people, London School of Economics, a member of parliament. He sat as the chairman on Britain's Imperial Shipping Committee. So he's also thinking about maritime things. And he's looking about the world in his day being transferred by railways. And he thinks that Russia has a much better geographic position than Great Britain. And here's his take. This is his map from his 1904 article. And he's looking at that, what he describes as the pivot area in that map, which is, he also calls it the heartland. And it corresponds, as you can see, with Russia. And he describes it as the citadel of land power on the great mainland of the world, the greatest natural fortress on earth. It's impervious to sea power. Why? Because Russia is surrounded by deserts, mountains, frozen seas, or narrow seas, or it has rivers dead ending into places that are not accessible to maritime power in wartime. So that this is a world not insulated by the sea, but from the sea. Maritime powers cannot get at Russia very easily. And, but he said, look, there are strengths to occupying this pivot area. You have defense in depth, which gives you the possibility of strategic defeat. And also Russia's large enough to be self-sufficient and um, that has benefits. If maritime powers wanna influence this heartland, they've gotta do it according to McKinder through bases on the periphery of the pivot area. And in his time, this would be through having colonies and strategic places. In our time, it would have to do with having alliance, ally, allies in strategic places. Um, Another person who is also uh, very concerned about who controls the heartland is this man, Nicholas Spikeman, who died in 1943, the year his most important work came out. And he's looking at the world. Um, he was a very distinguished professor at Yale. I think he, formed, he uh, was a founder of their international studies program, uh, but he was born in Holland. And Holland was under Nazi occupation at the time. And here's what uh, Spikeman's writing. Despite occupying the safe, safest position of any nation in the world, we Americans have been involved in two devastating world wars. And at one point we were in serious danger of defeat, i.e. in the current war. The expectations of statesmen regarding the outcomes of their actions were consistently wrong. Oops, big problem. And when he looks at the world and is thinking about how, how are Americans gonna survive World War II, he looks at it and said, look, US security is a function of the sea. 
that the influence of the United States can be brought to bear on Europe and the Far East only by seaborne traffic. And the powers of the states of Eurasia can only reach us over the sea. And this is even true despite the importance of air traffic because most of what's transported comes by sea. And it still does. And so Spikeman saying, look, sanctuary at home, the ability to have an untouched productive base, this is a function of your maritime shield. And he, like Mackinder, is very concerned about who controls uh, the heartland. Is it friend or foe? And he's looking at the Rimlands where the maritime powers can get access to the heartland. He said, look, um, the United States is gonna have to depend on our sea communications across the Atlantic and the Pacific to get to the old world. And the whatever sort of access the United States has is gonna determine what kind of foreign policy the United States uh, has. And if you're gonna, fight World War II, you have got to have a continental ally. And therefore, if you're, according to Spikeman, the outcome of World War II is dependent on alliances and alliance systems. So today I'm gonna to be using Mackinder's term heartland and Spikeman's term rimland. And they are the two of the greatest people to study geopolitics, uh, very famous folks to introduce. But here's my real plan for today. I am going to start talking about the continental world. And this is, if you think about the great civilizations of Eurasia, many of them began as continental empires. And then, and they come first in history. And then I'm gonna to turn to maritime empires. And at the Naval War College, we like animals and I hope you like animals too. And we often refer to continental empires as elephants and maritime powers as whales. And if you'll excuse me, I'll use the cheesy terminology later on. But then I'm going to turn to the Industrial Revolution, which upends both continental and maritime powers and introduced a maritime-based world order of focusing on international trade that is very much a work in progress. So here's my game plan, and now I'm off to the races. Now, Mackinder was very concerned with Russia because in his lifetime, China was, in a, was a failed state in free fall. But I'm gonna start by talking about China as the original continental power, not Russia. And if you read China, China's fundamental military theorist, Sun Tzu, he is busy offering advice to kings on how to stay in the throne, deal with multiple adversaries and do so cost effectively. And in his work, there is no mention of naval warfare and hardly anything about riverine warfare. And no kidding, uh, because this is all, Sunza is focusing on this continental world in existence long before maritime empires appear. And if you think about it, a civilization, which China is a civilization, it's as well as an empire, uh, it answers the questions how should I live and how should I interact with others? And it it, is, it, it constitutes a complete world order and helps explain why civilizations have often fought to make their rules universal. And if you look at China, it has repeatedly been invaded, mainly from the North, barbarian tribes, who like Westerners of modern times have been very interested in Chinese manufactures. 
And here's a precipitation map to get you going on China. And you can see the areas are awfully dry. And here's a temperature map. And here are the areas that are awfully cold. And here's a topographical map. And if you look here this in, within the circle, those are the areas that are pretty flat and good for agriculture. So, and here's an even better topographical map. I love this one. It gives you a sense of why China has suffered from famines through so, so much of it his its history. It is just rough feeding a lot of people with geography that looks like that. Uh, here's an ethnic map. The, that huge pink area is where the Han, the predominant ethnic group of China, that's where they predominate. And all the colorful stuff on the periphery, this is where all sorts of other ethnic groups live. Here's a simplified ethnic map. And the curious might ask, how did the Han wind up with all the prime real estate, all the most arable lands, the right temperature with enough rainfall, et cetera? And the answer would be they laid waste to the competing Dzungar and Tibetan empires and to many other ethnic groups who originated way up north, either often the Yellow River or further south of the Yangtze River. But they faced a binary choice. Either you become like the Han or they'll kill you and you better flee. It's a binary choice. Genocide is often what happens to the losers of continental empire. Apparently in our own time, the Uyghurs are slated for genocide. I'm now gonna give you a sanitized version of Chinese history. The Han began ages ago uh, in the Yellow River Valley, and then they spread and they spread and they spread and they built walls, not actually a new idea. They spread and they built more walls and they continued spreading and then they shrank an awful lot, but they're back and now they're contorting, they're consolidating and then a lot of consolidation before conquest by others. This is the Chinese view of the Yuan dynasty. They make it look as if it's like any other Chinese dynasty. It's not, the Mongols are controlled and control. They're the Yuan and the fact of uh, foreign domination is a major discontinuity. Here's the real story on the Mongol, the Yuan dynasty, the Mongols. Uh, the Tan were not in control. This is the largest empire in Chinese history. No Han Chinese empire is remotely this large. And here's how it goes. The Mongols start out a little bit the east of Lake Baikal and they spread in another era of climate change when temperatures were dropping. And if you didn't move your herds, you're all gonna to freeze to death and starve. And they kept on going and going across the Eurasian plain. But the Chinese reasserted themselves under the Ming, which then fell to the second largest dynasty in Chinese history, another conquest dynasty, the Qing or Manchus. They're not Han Chinese. And what's interesting is when the Chinese talk about their history in ancestral lands, they will either go back to the Yuan dynasty or the Qing dynasty when the Han were a subjugated people. Now, the point of all the fun pictures and ripping you through all of this is you've seen China with lots and lots of shrinkage, lots and lots of growth, back and forth, back and forth, and lots and lots and lots of bloodshed while these changes are being made. made. China has been raising armies denominated in hundreds of thousands for thousands of years. The West does not do this, and it certainly doesn't do it on a regular basis until the Napoleonic Wars, but China's been doing it forever. It is, uh, it is not a world for the faint-hearted. All right, Russia is the country that preoccupied Mackinder when he's looking at things. 
because McKinder is looking at railways and he's thinking of internal lines of communication, that railways will offer these wonderful internal lines, whereas uh, maritime powers are about external lines. Think about it, the oceans are these exterior lines. And this is a primary discriminator between a maritime and a continental power. So the Russian expansion opera, uh, is like the Mongols in reverse. They st the Russians start out in the West and move East across the Eurasian plain. Muscovy uh, conquers the competing principalities, princely states around it. And then there's this very lucrative uh, fur trade that sends them all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. And the Russians keep going until they run into countervailing population centers that stop them. This is a nice provincial map of Russia. It shows Moscow, the historic capital. And what's interesting is the provinces are all are pretty small around Moscow. But the further from Moscow you get, they get awfully large. And here's a, a clearer map of all of this, except it's not totally clear. Um, Russia and also China has used changing provincial boundary, boundaries to um, digest the recently ingested peoples. So if you look, all those provinces or um, governorates, gubernia in Russian, the newly conquered place are called oblasty and they're in these invisible gray fonts, which I've now made it a little clearer to you. And you can see they're all on these exterior areas. In order to complete the digestion process of these conquered peoples, Russia superimposed governor generalships. It's a military occupation. And you can see who's occupied, Finland, Poland, Ukraine, Caucasus, Turkestan, and Siberia. And China's played the same game with changing provincial boundaries in the case of China and changing military regions in China. And it's all about ingesting the recently conquered. You don't want them defecting. And if you can regularize them into a normal province, that's great. If you can, at least you can neutralize them. All right, as Mackinder believes that Russia's got the advantageous position, but the central location, the heartland comes with a corresponding disadvantage, which is multiple neighbors. And these are Russia's no uh, uh, kidding security threats circa 1900. And West East are Germany, Austria-Hungary, Ottoman Empire, British Empire, China, and Japan. And Russia has had bitter fights on again, uh, multiple times with Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire. It suffered catastrophic uh, defeats to the Mongols, the Swedes, initially to Napoleon, the Germans, and most recently to the West in the Cold War. But each time the central position allowed them to rise again. This security world is radically different from say Britain with its 360 degree, you can't get me moat. And the, this sort of world, power is a function of land and neighbors are dangerous, even weak neighbors, weak and stable neighbors, why? Because their instability can bleed over your borders and that's bad, but a stable neighbor could be worse if they're bent on empire and taking away parts of your territory. So in this world, the purpose of the army is very different than for a maritime power. Maritime power armies are uh, for away games, the away is you cross the seas, you go away somewhere and you're fighting there. That is not how it works in this world. Rule, goal number one of the army is to protect the ruling regime, keep it in power. 
The People's Liberation Army is the Praetorian Guard of the Chinese Communist Party. Its goal is keep the party in power. That is mission number one. Mission number two is garrison the empire. Do not allow defections. And only three down that list is border defense. And if you're fighting on the borders, whoever wins is gonna take whatever it is that is conquered. So that there, are, there aren't away games in this, in this game, in this world. It's all about your fighting at home on the borders, et cetera. And uh, there are some real problems about the home front, uh, main front. And I'm gonna use statistics from World War II to illustrate this. You've got military deaths, civilian deaths. If you look at the Axis powers, military deaths, you have 3.2 dead million dead uh, German soldiers, one and a half million Japanese and a third of a million Italians. Let's took, look at the, the allied land powers. You got eight and a half million dead Russian soldiers, nearly a million dead Poles, 1.3 million dead Chinese, and a third of a million Frenchmen. And let's compare the maritime powers. By some statistics, Britain and the United States suffered fewer military deaths than Italy and France. And France wasn't in the war that long. If you add in the civilian deaths, the statistics become even more skewed. Take a look at what happens to Germany, 7 million deaths. Russia, 25 and a half million deaths. Poland, nearly 7 million. China, 11 million. France, nearly a million. Whereas the statistics for Britain and the United States hardly budge. Uh, no, no one in their right mind wants to fight on the main front if there are alternatives. This is what the main front looks like. The main front is the land power's unavoidable agony. If, it's, if they're your borders, you're gonna be fighting there. Whereas for maritime power, it is a major point of strategy. Uh, point number one is whether you ever wanna engage on the main front, at all. And secondly, if you decide that you are going to engage, when uh, would you want to do so? Think about it. Maybe you don't have to. Take, for example, example, the Cold War. The United States never fought in the main front, which would have been Germany if, it, if we'd fought there. However, there are benefits of winning on the main front. And Stalin paid an enormous price, or at least the Russian people did in World War II. But at the end of World War II, wherever the Red Army was, that territory uh, the Russians kept, right? They occupied Eastern Europe forever, but it comes at an enormous cost. If you wanna do this, the value of the object had better be worth it. So if you wanna play to win in this sort of world, there are certain rules. Uh, rule number one, no two front wars. Uh, neighbors are multiple. Uh, don't you wanna fight them one at a time? If they gang up on you, you are in deep, dark trouble. Rule number two, no great power neighbors. Why? Because today's friend can be tomorrow's foe and that spells trouble. So what do you do? You take on the neighbors sequentially. You set them up to fail. You destabilize the rising and just the failing and you uh, set up buffer zones in between and you wait the opportune moment to pounce and absorb. That is Vladimir Putin's game. And better yet, you let the neighbors do the work for you. You sow their mutual uh, resentments. You deluge them with fake news. Get them to fight among each other so that Russia can play the role of the jackal state in order to steal the kill made by others. 
Now there's a problem with this security paradigm in the modern era. You're surrounding yourself by failing with failing states. And if you look at the map and see, check out who China and Russia's neighbors, you can go, wow, uh, they're surrounded by some really unstable places. Are they unlucky or are they complicit? Also in this world, there are no enduring alliances because the neighbors figure it out that the hegemonic power offers them nothing but trouble in the long run. And so there's a tendency to overextension. There's no counsel of, okay, as I'm busy destabilizing my neighbors, when is enough to enough? enough? When do I cease expanding outwards? And this may help explain the catastrophic and repeated defeats that have occurred throughout Chinese and Russian history. Now, before you dismiss this security paradigm, uh, it was incredibly effective prior to the Industrial Revolution. Russia and China have had no trouble dealing with insurgencies. They just kill all the insurgents plus extras. Collateral damage, who cares? If this world is all about killing people to get, uh, to get territory. And you've seen it operating in real time. In Aleppo in 2016, Mosul 2017, and Idlib in 2018 and 2020. This is why all the ancient ruins are ruins if you fight this way. But uh, it worked. You control territory if you did this to people back in the day. And here I will turn to some Russian, uh, Russian historian, Vasily Kluchevsky, who was one of the greatest late czarist historians describing uh, his country. He said, look, the history of the Russia is a history of a country in the process of colonizing itself. Uh, we've grown and we've shrunk and our history is about what we've done with the land that we've taken from others. So it, it, this is the natural ebb and flow according to this great historian. If you go back a generation to one of Russia's greatest novelists, you can see again that continental expansion figures prominently uh, in Russian minds. This is Fyodor Dostoevsky, great novelist, or author of Crime and Punishment, other light reads. And he writes, in Europe, we were hangers on and slaves, whereas we shall go to Asia as masters. In Europe, we are Asiatics, whereas Asia, we too are Europeans. Our civilizing mission in Asia will bribe our spirit and drive us thither. And then you go forward in time to one of the greatest statesmen of the late Tsarist period, finance minister, Sergei Vita, and here's his take. The problem for Russia is to obtain as large a share as possible of the outlived Oriental states. And he's thinking of the Ottoman Empire, but especially of the Chinese Colossus. And Russia is positioned and has the right to the lion's share for all of this. We've been doing this for years. The absorption by Russia of a considerable portion of the Chinese empire is only a matter of time, unless the Chinese get their act in gear. So here you have someone at the highest levels of Russian power and policy thinking in terms of territorial expansion. So too apparently does Vladimir Putin. But here's the problem for Putin, is that if a continental power botches strategy, its known world can vanish forever. And this is what has happened to Imperial Russia, Imperial China, and many of the great civilizations of Eurasia. Pictured here is an aristocrat's whimsical palace. Well, that world is gone as a result of one of the most horrific genocides of the 20th century when there were many genocides 
because the communists made good their promise to eliminate entire social classes, which they did with the Russian Revolution, the Russian Civil War, collectivization, and the Great Purges. That was it on certain uh, social classes. They're never coming back again. So this is the continental world. It is a world without insurance policies. What about the maritime world? I love this picture. It shows all this oceanic trade going along the rimlands and the trade is traversing the maritime commons, a shared space. And it's following the rimlands, which are these wealth producing areas where all the trade's happening. And you can see in the 19th century, the, uh, the Atlantic was a busy place, the center of the world economy. And think about it in our highly networked age that the sea is the, the original network, the network that potentially connected everyone with everything. If you think about it, you go back in Western history and the original uh, empire or one of the very early ones, of course, is the Athenian empire. It's one of these Rimland empires hugging the shores of the Aegean and Ionian seas and uh, leveraging this wealth producing trade. Roman Empire, likewise, another Rimlin Empire. It's very different from the consolidated empires of China and Russia. And think about the name Mediterranean, Meta-Middle-Terranean seas, uh, I mean lands, excuse me. So it's the sea in the middle of the land versus Zhongguo, which is the name for China. Zhong, central Guo kingdom, the kingdom among the kingdoms, the central one. One piece of terminology emphasizes the centrality of the sea, the other, the centrality uh, of the land. And then you go forward in history, you get the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. Again, it's a Rimlin Empire. Europe, Western Europe is not a part of it. And then no one control, controls the Rimlins for quite a, for a, a period of time. And here's part of what's going on. The East-West trade has been lucrative for a really, really long time. And the power that controls that area in the yellow circle, I think it's more or less where Aleppo is, which is where ISIS was blowing up beautiful classical structures not too long ago. Um, and that's really lucrative because the Silk Road splits and it either heads northwards up towards Europe or um, then uh, or towards the northern coast of Africa. And there's been much fighting on who controls that. And for a while, the Muslim conquest handled it, that they controlled the western terminus of the Silk Road. And meanwhile, there's a continental consolidation going on in Europe. The conquest of Charlemagne at the eighth to the ninth century this is what produces what some people, the Germans called the First Reich, other people call the Holy Roman Empire. And you can see that Europe is consolidating into some pretty large states is what's going on. But meanwhile, there is gonna be a fight for the Rimlands and this is where the Crusades come in. Part of the game is seeing if you can retake the uh, Western end of that Silk Route and the Ottomans settled that for hundreds of years when they're the ones who wind up taking it over and, it's, uh, and gaining the wealth from it. So the Europeans have to get creative and the Spanish and the Portuguese are the first to do this. They decide they wanna to head to Asia the long way around. 
except they bump into the Americas and they run into gold and silver and decide, aha, it's gonna be heavy metal, forget the spices, what were we thinking? Uh, but the Dutch are the ones who, whose empire is really defined by their ports and trade, and they do go the long way around and get themselves to Asia. The problem for the Dutch is their position in Europe is exposed to conquest by large army, which, which is what happens to them. So the British are the ones who really pioneer maritime empire because they're the only European power that doesn't have to raise a really large standing army. Everyone else needs one because if you don't have one, you're gonna be invaded by someone. And the Brit British, if they can maintain a dominant Navy, if anyone tries to invade, they have to come by sea and Britain can drown those armies at sea. And then the Britons turn a weakness into a strength by turning, which is their dependence on foreign trade. But if they can leverage their access to the world with their Navy and their sailing ships, and they can make all kinds of money off this trade, they can be busy growing economically while their quarreling enemies are busy destroying wealth at a really rapid clip. So Britain uses its Navy to have sanctuary at home. It, the Navy is insufficient to eliminate continental threats, but it's a prevent defeat mechanism. Britain is never gonna be defeated. It's not gonna defeat its continental enemies with a Navy, uh, but the Navy can put time on Britain's side. If Britain keeps on growing economically and its friends keep on wiping out economic growth that Britain's problems will get smaller in the long term. And Britain had a lot of time to figure out how to deal with continental enemies. This gentleman on the nice horse gave them much food for thought. And it took uh, Napoleon, uh, France, revolutionary France's um, enemies, six failed coalitions, finally a capstone al alliance to defeat France. And Britain through much trial and much error finally put together a grand strategy to deal with continental problems. And indeed they coined the term grand strategy because navies are not decisive the way armies are. An army can, not always, but it can uh, win a war for you. But navies, it's very rare. Usually you have to combine navies with other elements of national power to solve your problems. And the British figured out how to do this. So when they're, if you're looking at the beginning of just prior to the catastrophe when Napoleon really gets going, you have consolidated uh, states, East and West in Europe and a big tidbit zone in between. Well, Napoleon takes the tidbits and that's it for the Holy Roman Empire, which had formerly been an Austrian sphere of influence. So if you fast forward to 1812, which is Napoleon's peak year, it's bad year for Britain. And this is when Clausewitz, pictured there in the corner, is the, he's the great Western theorist of ground warfare where he's getting all sorts of ideas on how to deal with uh, the French. And this is when the British get quite creative on what to do. And here is their paradigm. And I'm gonna go back to the animals I introduced at the beginning um, of the British strategy for elephant hunting, going after continental powers. Rule number one, is keep the economy growing. You've got to protect trade because that's the source of British, Britain's wealth and ability to pay for armies and everything else. Rule number two, don't let the enemy ele uh, elephant forage. You want to close down enemy trade. 
And rule number three, you want to rent an elephant. You find your enemy's most dire continental enemy. And then you're going to fund and arm that enemy to do most of the fighting on the main front that that power cannot avoid because of their geographic lo location. They're just stuck with it. Rule number four, Britain needs to find a peripheral theater that favors access, favors sea power over land power and fight in that theater for a couple of reasons. One, just to attrite enemy forces, have cumulative effects with the peripheral and the main theater. But you also want to remove pressure on that main theater to keep your continental ally in the game. And you want to make your continental enemy fight on divided attentions. Rule number five, a rule that Britain broke at great cost in World War I, do not go toe to toe with the enemy's main force, certainly not at the beginning of the war. Uh, continental power's main, main strength is its army. That's not Britain's main strength. Stay away from that army as long as possible. Rely on Britain's strengths, which were its navy, its ability to generate wealth through trade, and as a result, an ability to endure protracted war. And rule number six, if you're gonna fight on the main front, only do it late in the war after the elephant, the enemy elephant is really bled, and then only do, uh, do so with lots of friends and gang up on them. As much as a continental power might wanna play this game, uh, it's not gonna happen. They don't have the geographic position to do this. And let me explain a little more about it. If Britain followed these rules, it would put in motion a virtuous circle of pernicious effects and putting itself and its enemy on and itself and its enemy on opposing trend lines. So as Britain's getting richer, its enemy's getting poorer. So that the war would increasingly encroach on enemy territory, undermining the enemy economy, undermining enemy standards of living, productive capacity, morale at home, which is together going to destroy the enemy's capability to wage war. In effect, Britain would win by exhausting the enemy first. But note that this paradigm uh, focuses more on non-military instruments of national power than on military instruments. It's really all about economics, coalitions, and institution building, and there's certain prerequisites to play this game. You gotta have sanctuary at home. You gotta have a, a protected, productive base. You also need access both to overseas markets, but also to um, peripheral theaters. And you need institutional stability at home in order to fund the Navy long-term and also to maintain foreign policy continuity. And as much as the continental power might wanna do this stuff, it's not gonna happen. You need to have command of the sea, dominance at sea, which the geographic position of a land power is unlikely to yield. Uh, so the, after the Napoleonic Wars ended, uh, there was the beginnings of um, a maritime, growing maritime trade of which all European powers were participating. It was incredibly prosperous century that kept on going until the Germans had had enough of it uh, by World War I when they wanted to be the number one power and not Britain. So this brings me to the revolution that upends it all. The Industrial Revolution is going to upend not only the world for continental powers, but also for maritime empire as well. And it's going to introduce a maritime rules-based order that is very much a work in progress. 
but it, it comes about as a result of the Industrial Revolution that had begun in England, at, but didn't spread to the continent until after the, the Napoleonic Wars had ended, and it's been making its way around the world ever since. It's incredibly disrupted. It's the greatest revolution, I think, in human history. Why? Because it introduces economic growth. And the compounding effects of economic growth are powerful, and they upended the world's balance of power. But if you look at the Industrial Revolution, it's really a combination not only of technological changes, but also institutional changes. In its early stages, it's about steam power, the iron industry, textiles, insurance, and banking. And its later stages, it's about railways, telegraph, steamships, mass markets, trades, armaments, general staffs. And it changes the currency of international power. Formerly, uh, wealth had been a function and power had been a function of, of land. Why? Because land produced the commodities that could be sold and also its peasant conscripts that are you're going to field your large standing armies with. Well, the Industrial Revolution changes that because wealth is going to become a, a function not of land, but of commerce, trade, and industry. And you'll use that to buy your armies. And it just upends things. So that um, countries that had very successful security paradigms, suddenly they aren't working anymore. I mean, look around the world today and say, well, who's rich and who's not, who's powerful and who's not. And it's very much uh, the degree to which the Industrial Revolution took root. And it was a catastrophic event for traditional societies. And uh, it's still highly disruptive. Think about ISIS or whatever is left of it. ISIS reviles the kind of liberal economies and liberal societies that came after, out of this. And China back in the day was just appalled by these maritime powers coming their way. And the Chinese remain ambivalent at best about international laws and institutions. And if I go, the Industrial Revolution brings in railways. And think of it, this is what Mackinder's so concerned about. And you see all that yellow space that Mackinder thinks is going to have a unified transportation grid. There's another way of looking at this map. You can notice that the Mongol, British, and Roman empires all overlap at the terminus of the Silk Road. There's all this money to be made on east-west trade. And under the old way of doing things, if you occupied that area, there was a lot of money to be had. Well, Here's another product of the Industrial Revolution. It's the Suez Canal that is gonna wreck the Silk Road because it is so much cheaper sending things by sailing ships than trying to send things by camel over that Silk Road. And even by railways, it is so much uh, cheaper to do things this way. And it has profound implications for continental and maritime powers. Now fast forward a century to the Six Day War this is when Israel is fighting Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. So the Egyptians don't want the Israelis to use the Suez Canal. So they put block ships in the canal. And that keeps the Israelis from using the Suez Canal. That is the operational objective. Well, the Egyptians keep the Suez Canal closed down. They don't clean up the block ships until 1975. That is a long time. Things happen. Prior to the war, most of the world's trade um, were going in ships, like 90% of it was going in ships of 50,000 deadweight tons or less. That is the 
maximum size that you could send, the maximum size for ships that could transit the, the Suez Canal used to be that size. Well, um, after the, the, um, they, they reopened the Suez Canal, only a third, of, it's less than a third of the world's traffic is going on those ships. And actually, if you look at it, uh, more than a third of the world's traffic is going on ships that are so large that they hadn't even been in existence prior to the Six Day War. And when shipping companies adapted to the closure of the Suez Canal, they realized that their costs were really not a function of distance, but it had to do with overhead per ship. And those little ships, if you're gonna take oil to Rotterdam, uh, it costs more than 13 bucks a ton to send that the oil uh, the short way on the little ships, whereas it's under five bucks uh, the price on the large ships. So think about it from the Egyptian point of view. It's great. Okay, you kept the Israelis out of the canal for a certain period of time, the operational objective. Strategically, you have marginalized the importance of the Suez Canal. It's never ever going to be as important ever again. So in life, it's the strategic objectives that actually count. You need to pay attention to them. Bad news for the Egyptians. Meanwhile, another change was taking place. It's terribly important. It has to do with Malcolm McLean, who revolutionized your lives. He ran a uh, shipping company and he has this great idea that he's going to load his trucks uh, on decks and below decks, minus the chassis, what we call containers. And he does this. Well, previously, it had cost nearly six bu uh, bucks per ton to load stuff. Well, after he does this, it's less than 20 cents a ton. And it's really quick so that ships are spending much more time out and about making money. And pretty soon internationally, these container sizes are standardized in the late 60s to run one if by truck, two if by rail car, and thousands if by sea. And you can see out of the course of the 20th century, uh, transport costs just plummet. And today when companies that are getting goods from overseas, when they're doing their ca cost calculations and entering the numbers in their equations for shipping costs, they enter the number zero for sea transport because the costs are just so microscopic compared to the value of the cargo that's actually moving around. Uh, apparently the latest dictator for life, Xi Jinping, thinks he's gonna do a Belt Road number and he's gonna somehow resurrect the Silk Route or the, the Mongol Empire, or I don't know if he's gonna do a treaty port game, which apparently the Chinese didn't like when the, the Europeans were doing it to them. Uh, it's a non-starter, and here's why. As of 1960, the average tanker size was 20,000 deadweight tons. Well, in our own day, the smallest ultra-large crude tankers are a quarter of a million tons. The largest container ships take 21,000 containers, more than, and that adds up to cargo that's just shy of a billion dollars. Well, the largest train can take 600 containers and you wonder whether there's that down pillows to make it possible to pull, who knows. The point about all this is that it's far cheaper to ship things by sea. It's, it's just no comparison. And it's also far more secure. If China wants to use the, uh, the belt part of that, the railway part of their belt road initiative, they've got to control the railway line from end to end. And that's a tall order going through Central Asia and the Caucasus, some of the most unstable places on the planet. And it would be nice if the railway track were all the same gauge. Well, it isn't. 
So you're gonna be loading and unloading things until you go crazy. And then China can use its sea roads, its road part of the Belt Road Initiative in peacetime, that's not a problem, everyone can use them. But in wartime, it's gonna have troubles. And it's not only because it doesn't have enough friends and it doesn't have enough naval assets, it's just its basic geography. It is hemmed in by narrow seas, cluttered with islands that are eminently blockadable, mineable and other things. So it's gonna be bad news. War, war won't work well on all of this trade. And if you think about uh, this global trade, it has just taken off in the 20th century. And it really takes off after the end of the Cold War. And it's really important. It lifts hundreds of millions of people out of poverty across the world. This is the miracle of our lifetimes. And so it's goodbye and good riddance, Soviet Union. And the problem for Mr. Putin is the growth's not happening at his house. It's taking place at the homes of those vested in this rules-based maritime trading order that is based on trade, not extortion. So the Industrial Revolution put continental empires on notice, not only because um, it's much cheaper to ship things by sea than to try to do things by land, but also because the Industrial Revolution opened up a possibility of a positive sum world order. And here I'll explain what I mean. If you look at continental empires, it's a negative sum world order. If we're all gonna be divided into spheres of influence and be fighting each other. If you think about it, the winner's win is less than the loser's loss because the territory gets damaged by all of the fighting. So producing a negative sum. And uh, also, if you're thinking about it, if you're always fighting with people or destabilizing people, you're destroying wealth at a really, really rapid clip. So there's a problem with this world order. And here's the miracle of the Industrial Revolution and the possibility of trade. Trade's win-win. Uh, Maybe one power, one country gets 90% from the profits and another gets 10%. That seems awfully skewed, but everybody's getting something out of it or you're not gonna be doing the trading. And you no longer have a world order that is, is where the strong are wrecking the weak. You don't make money wrecking each other. You don't get repeat business partners by wrecking people. And in this world, the focus is on wealth creation and the way it's done is through freedom of navigation, free trade, international laws and institutions, facilitating the trade to minimize transaction costs. And what's fascinating about it is countries buy into it by choice. You sign treaties or you don't sign treaties if you don't want to. And you sign treaties with provisos saying um, uh, articles one through five are good, but I, uh, try, article six doesn't apply to us. But even countries that are not maritime by geography, because they have so many allies, so many countries vested in these international institutions, laws, treaties, et cetera, um, that they can follow a maritime security paradigm. Why? because it's in everybody's interest to enforce the rules. That's how you minimize transaction costs. You may not go around invading the problems, but you might well sanction them. So uh, because this economic growth is such a win-win for all, this maritime world, however, is invisible. Why? It took me 15 years of the war college to figure, figure out the obvious, but now I'll share it with you. 
Um, it's the difference between positive and negative objectives. The continental world is all about positive objectives. Positive objective is making things happen, taking territory. A negative objective is about preventing things from happening. Well, if you make something happen, it's probably visible. But if you prevent something from happening, surprise, surprise, it's invisible. You can't even prove that you prevented anything. So at an operational level, continental powers are about defeating neighbors totally, taking their stuff. It's a positive objective. But at the strategic level where it counts, you are destroying wealth at a very, very rapid clip. So it's a positive objective that destroys. And it has not well, in the modern period, it has not worked out well for those who've tried it. You've seen it in operating in real time in places like Ukraine and Syria, where you're just wrecking these places. It's what are you getting out of it? Great, you now control the Crimea that used, Crimea that used to be a decent vacation spot. Now it's just a mess. The maritime world is invisible because it's about negative objectives. And navies are about negative objectives. If you think about what a navy does, in fact, no one does. The United States is the greatest naval power there has ever been. And there is not a single history program in the United States that studies naval history. It's amazing. But here's what navies do. They, uh, they sometimes are interested in positive objectives like sinking the enemy fleet, but most of the time it's, it's negative times and they have a massive peacetime role. What is it? One, preventing the destruction of the global trading system. That would be important. All of our prosperity hinges on that one. Secondly, preventing limits on freedom of navigation. If you cannot get the trade across the high seas, you can't do the trade. And if you don't have navies, you're going to have piracy. Those uh, ships carrying a billion dollar of dollars of cargo, cargo, they are really lucrative targets. With the navy, no one touches them. Uh, navies are also about deterring territorial expansion. And think about it: the bedrock principle of international law is sovereignty. Big countries cannot go running around taking over little countries, even though they have the wherewithal to do the, do so. So here's how maritime powers play the game. Navies, yeah, that's good. But it's fundamentally about alliances and diplomacy, getting together with others. When there are problems, what do you do? You sanction people, embargoes, containment. Uh, what's going on there? Well, you, you all know about compounded growth, right? And it's, uh, it's incredible what compounded growth does. But what people don't see is if a sanction shaves off one or two percentage points of growth, that also has compounding effects. They may be invisible, uh, but they're huge. For instance, look at North and South Korea. At the end of the Korean War, North Korea was by far the richer part of that peninsula. Not anymore. The compounding effects are huge. It was also huge against the Soviet Union. And this is why Vladimir Putin is so determined to get rid of the sanctions that are wrecking him. His economy is crumbling around him. And this is why he's been interfering so aggressively in Western uh, elections and why he tries uh, to take territories in order to keep his population with him. It's a total mess. So here you have maritime powers about negative objectives, but it can yield a positive strategic objective, which would be compounding wealth for the cooperative and compounding poverty for the uncooperative. So while it might be satisfying to have the big operational win to go beat up whoever it is you don't like, 
that's a very expensive proposition, and particularly if the person you don't like has nuclear weapons. And the maritime paradigm is not about these operational wins, it's about the strategic win. Is you put time on your side by sanctioning the, the problem people, and you welcome them back in when they're willing to cease causing problems. But in the meantime, you and your friends keep the gravy train rolling for you and for them. Um, at the end of the Cold War, many thought that liberal democracy was going to spread globally. Not so. The continental maritime competition remains. And here are two of the most notorious rogues in their native habitat. There is Mr. Fit and Miss Fit. Putin and Kim, who want to uh, undermine international laws, hollow out international institutions, and return us to the Habesian world of warring uh, states, warring for spheres of influence, so we can live in the kind of squalor that their countries live in. And then there is Xi Jinping and his country, China, the country that has most benefited over the last generation from reconnecting with an the maritime world, liberal, uh, liberalizing trade and opening to the West. And yet it is now trying to undermine the order on which its prosperity is, ba is based. And it's currently attacking the West and Japan through cyber espionage, cyber theft, arguably cyber war, and now the pandemic that got going for lack of a free press in Wuhan. Uh, as the Chinese Communist Power, uh, Chinese Communist Party clings to power and to its illiberal politics. So if you think the US is a China problem, Russia has a China nightmare because China's 30 year rise has corresponded with Russia's collapse. Think about it, two continental negative sum empires sharing a border uh, with major gripes, gripes on both sides now during a pandemic. Uh, it's ugly. In the world wars, the United States was blessed from uh, immunity from foreign attack. We had sanctuary at home. That is no longer true with the advent of precision nuclear ballistic missiles. Just one nuclear strike in the world, as you know, it will change because the passions that that will elicit will be uh, unsuppressible. Um, those vested in the rules-based international order has got to get the geopolitics right. Uh, we're now, um, the United States has got to get its domestic house in order to do so. We're living through a crisis that I believe is going to divide eras. We've, we all, I believe, spent the last year under lockdown. More Americans have died in one year's time of COVID than all Americans in both world wars and the Vietnam Wars, uh, and it's rather incredible. We need to do better. Uh, but on that cheery note, uh, I've given you some of the uh, security paradigms to think about what we need to do next. So that's what I have to say to you, and I'm gonna cease sharing slides because enough of Xi Jinping. Yeah, he's gone. And now I'm back. All right, let's open it up to questions. First out of the gate, raring to go is my colleague, Mike Desch. Mike, would you like to ask the first question? Oh, I should uh, make the PSAs two quick announcements. One, 
Uh, turn your camera on when you ask a question. You'll be unmuted by um, our very capable assistants, uh, Amy and Anika. And second, uh, the one finger, two finger rules are in effect. One finger is raising your hand, the raise hand function. Um, and that's just, you get in the queue. And if you have a point on point that someone's just mentioned, you do a two finger, which in this uh, online world is represented by the thumbs up icon. I'll get to you if I can. All right, uh, after that, Mike, take it away. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Joe. Uh, Professor Payne, thanks. That was a uh, real tour de force. Um, uh, uh, reminded me of uh, a lot of world history I'd forgotten and should know. Uh, I just want to ask you one question. Um, and this may sound a little bit perverse, but uh, I'm going to ask it anyhow. Um, I'm not convinced that the United States is a maritime state. Your employer and my good colleague, Captain Procopius, uh, notwithstanding, um, I, I, I'm wondering, you know, how useful um, thinking about the United States that way is. Now, you know, you're right. We have a lot of connections around the world, um, and, and we are a distance from a lot of important places. Um, but you know, for a good half of our history, we were an insular continental state. We were Prussia, um, not Great Britain. Um, and even today, uh, I'm wondering uh, about uh, this nexus between uh, the liberal global order um, and uh, uh, the U.S. as a maritime state. I, I was just going through uh, some measures uh, of... Uh, dependence on trade by global economies. The United States is actually, of all the global economies, the second least dependent uh, on international trade. And our largest trading powers uh, are not uh, on the other side of the world. The two largest trading powers are uh, within North America, uh, Mexico um, and Canada. And I think most of the economic activity, uh, you know, associated with the United States is generated uh, either domestically uh, in the United States or through uh, foreign trade um, in North America. So I, I'm having trouble thinking about us as a maritime power, a maritime power, you know, uh, like the uh, classic maritime power, Great Britain in the, uh, the 19th century. Um, so how am I thinking about this wrong? Um, and uh, why, why should I, uh, you know, uh, not think of the United States uh, as, as something other than a maritime power? Oh, you're not thinking about it wrong. There are um, good points. And, but let me say something about Prussia. We were never like Prussia. Prussia was always being eaten alive by neighbors. We never had that problem. And uh, it's horrific um, for uh, of, of the security, lethal security world. But your point is well taken. If you wanna look at a real maritime power, it is Britain, and then you can look at Japan, uh, islands. And our country, uh, we have this incredibly lucky geography. We have two neighbors that are good friends. And you're right, we do our trade with them. And 
big uh, oceans that make it really hard to get to us, that give us this degree of strategic latitude where we can just make horrendous mistakes and get away with it because of this. So you're quite correct. What I've given you is an oversimplification, which is also quite correct. But let's, and um, I think it's more like when the United States got so concerned about Middle Eastern oil, when for years we were the, the world's great producer of oil, and the trick was all of our allies needed it. And you're right, the United States has never had an economy that was particularly dependent on trade. It's more so now than it used to be, but it's still small relative to other powers. But we found it uh, beneficial to have um, a rules-based order that allows this trade to go because our allies are absolutely dependent on it. And um, the notion that we go completely insular and we write off all of Eurasia and uh, like for instance, letting Hitler just say, forget it. Why do you want to lose any American kids? Let Hitler take the whole uh, European peninsula. I think we decided on our security that was a poor idea. So we have this a, a geographic position that's very different from Russia's and China's. The moment that um, we start people, people start having drone bases in Mexico and uh, bombing us from there, uh, we'll have a paradigm that looks very different. You can only do these away games if you have security at home. So your points are all well taken, but our position is relatively far more secure than is normal for most countries. Even if you take a country like France, which has a long open coastline, so that way it's similar to us, but then it's sitting on its main security threat. And that's a real problem. And the miracle of putting the United States together and with Canada and other places and with Europe is it's had Europe having, uh, what is it? Uh, Europe used to be the battleground this unprecedented prosperity and uh, peace in Europe, this uh, rules-based order has been, um, in my mind, a major improvement over the old way of doing things. And yeah, there are greater and lesser dependency on trade. So your point is absolutely well taken. Uh, I don't disagree with your, uh, your points other than saying uh, Prussia had a much worse uh, setup than we did. Well, we were smarter than Prussia, and we had uh, weaker adversaries, so uh, we had an advantage. I guess just you know, very quickly, and I'll, I'll shut up, the unspoken assumption uh, that you're making, I'd like to hear you defend, which is absent uh, the United States acting like a maritime power, the rules-based order um, is going to fall apart. Um, and lots of people agree with that assumption. Um, but uh, not all of us uh, here do. Um, and it seems to me it's useful to uh, unpack that, particularly given that our own individual interest in the global rules-based order is not as great uh, as a lot of people think. Um, and uh, there's also an argument to be made that the rules-based uh, order exists because uh, people have an interest in it, even uh, China, um, and that uh, the sort of uh, major U.S. forward commitment that we think is essential to maintaining it, maintaining it 
may not be as essential as we assume. Okay, they're all good points. All right, I'm gonna take you back in time. And I believe, I can't prove this, there are probably some British historians who can take me out. I believe this rules-based order was made possible in part because the British in their empire, which was one of the older ones for, and where they stayed for a long period, they trained barristers all over the place. They trained lawyers, right? And so it meant you had lawyers from all over the world who could sign reasonable treaties. And when India gets independence, uh, the Indian civil service, this is where a lot of the Indian, Gandhi's a barrister. This is where a, a lot of people go. So that's one piece. A second piece is questioning the, how uh, valuable this order is. In my mind, the greatest generation of Americans are not the World War II generation who claimed the title, but their parents, the World War I generation. These are the people who are conscripts in World War I, Eisenhower, Truman. And then they tried to start out their lives in the Great Depression, start their families. And then they had the heartbreak of sending their children to World War II, knowing full well what they were sending their children onto. And after the end of that war, they thought, we're never gonna do this again if we possibly can help it. And they were willing to invest. And this is where you get all these, the UN, you get uh, the general, you get the um, Bretton Woods institutions, you start getting the general agreement of trade and tariffs, all sorts of institutions, massive US investment to make it happen with the Marshall Plan because they understood that being cheap in World War I and bailing on our own institution, which was the League of Nations, going to our insular past, because we can be insular in the United States, that uh, we could just let the rest of the world go to hell and it would still be okay. But as Winston Churchill said, well, I think it was, can't remember, it was during World War II, it was probably after World War II, he was at some Harvard commencement saying, look, uh, America, uh, you may try to uh, avoid the world's problems, but they come knocking on your doorstep. And that it is far the cheaper way of dealing with these things is coming up with rules, negotiating with each other, adhering to these rules, bringing other people on board. And we live in a world with nuclear weapons and we think, oh, no one will ever do one of those on us. Well, uh, excuse me, some of the crazier places in the world have nuclear weapons. And they don't have to be a particularly good strike to hit us. So I don't, the, I don't think we have an option to, well, uh, to it's foolishness to me to ignore the rest of the world. Now, there's a completely different argument about sending expeditionary forces all over the world. That's a whole different argument. That's not the argument I'm making. Over. Okay, next up, we're gonna go over to uh, Thomas Duffy. Duffy, Thomas, could you, um... Take your, uh, your start, start your video, please. Yeah, hey, uh, good afternoon, everybody. And, and thank you for the talk. I have the, uh, the odd distinction of being a graduate of both Notre Dame and the Naval War College. Um, and I'll be heading to teach at the National War College uh, starting this summer. Uh, so I have three quick strategy and history questions for you. Um, I thought it was a great uh, of, of 19th century thinkers, but could you also share your views about Mahan's other contemporary, uh, Sir Julian Corbett? In particular, Corbett's oh. observations 
that England's version of a maritime strategy had to be aligned with a continental land power in order to maintain a balance okay. of power in Europe. Uh, my oh, second yeah. question is on, um, with regard to the casualty figures in World War II, the high level of Japanese world casualties in the war, uh, Japan would be a classic maritime state. Uh, and it has these high casualty figures. Is the lesson here that maritime power should stay away from, from large scale land battles? And then a final question on the, on the British way of war. Uh, does Britain choose to fight on the periphery by preference or does it have to fight on the periphery uh, because it doesn't have any choice? And I'm thinking Wellington and Spain is the way to get to, to Napoleon and Montgomery in the Western desert as the way to get to Hitler. Uh, there was no other place they could actually fight. So they had to fight on the, on the periphery. They, they didn't have a choice. Uh, thank you. Okay, I hope I've written down enough of it. Okay, Corbett, uh, he's right. You want a land power ally. And this is relevant uh, with dealing with China. Uh, you do not want to go toe to toe with continental problems. And uh, I don't think it's feasible. In fact, and then your point about big land battles, no one wants to get in a big land battle. You want to avoid it if you possibly can. They're really, really costly, not a good idea. And Japan in World War II, the tragedy of Japan is they're, they're following a, a continental paradigm, invading all of China. If they had just stuck with invading Manchuria, which is a place they basically eliminated or at least contain the insurgency going on there after they invaded and were busy getting all sorts of resources going that they cared about since the West, the invasion of Manchuria happens a year after the Holy Smoot tariff when we say we won't trade. Oh, this is another America first moment. In fact, Dr. Zeus back in the day had cartoons, these America first cartoons going back then. Um, the moment that we played this game that the rest of the world, we don't care about it. The Japanese got desperate because they absolutely were dependent on trade. And that's when they invade Manchuria to get um, a big enough empire to survive in self-sufficiently. Uh, self um, if they just stuck with Manchuria and waited out whatever Hitler was gonna do, they probably would either kept Manchuria or if better yet, their, their better bet would have been to cooperate with Chiang Kai-shek to eliminate the communists, which are the people they really hated but they didn't do that for a whole variety of reasons. As for peripheral fights, yeah, it is the only thing that's feasible, but here's uh, why North Africa works so well. It's what a great place to fight Hitler because why does Rommel lose? He's the better general. He loses because he can't get his fuel across the Med. Why not? Because the British dominate the seas, they sink it. And so, um, if you, a maritime power, it, it's think in terms of a strategic win. So the Connell power is thinking, I want to win this battle. And that's, that's not the story. It's you want to contain the problem at acceptable cost. And so if you throw back North Korea into North Korea and just let, leave them there to fester, that's the way to go fighting North Koreans so they can do a nuclear strike on Tokyo or us is not the way to go. Just um, let them go fester in their continental disaster zone, but let the rest of us grow. And this goes back to an earlier question, is if you have a rules-based order where you're negotiating with people about what are traffic regulations gonna be globally? How do we settle credit card disputes globally? If you sort these things out, it's minimizing transaction costs for all of us. 
and making those who are cooperative and not running around invading people, it's making them wealthier while you put aside the people who are causing trouble. So I think I did uh, your three questions, but Corbett is great, but he, um, he's talking a lot about joint military operations and things, which is going in, at things with different military services, which just didn't fit into the lecture. Okay, thanks, so, maybe. Yeah. Uh, all right, uh, thank you for that question. We have a, a two finger from my colleague, Eugene Goltz. Huge, you wanna go ahead quickly? Okay, I think I'm unmuted now. You are. Good. Um, uh, uh, thanks very much. Uh, very interesting, uh, sweeping, big think talk. I just wanted to follow up on the first question that mm -hmm. uh, Thomas Duffy just asked. Yeah. Um, so you said maritime powers don't go toe to toe with the continental power. That sounds like a great idea to me. I'm 100% with you. Should. But, and you Should. applied it to China. So let's not go toe to toe with China. Great. Correct. Um, but you said it in the context of you should have a continental power ally who's going to do the bleeding and go toe to toe for you. And I'm wondering why do we care if somebody goes toe to toe with China? This continent, like, why do we need someone to go toe to toe with China at all? And if we do want someone to do that, who we're going to back. How's this going to work? Like we can flood money into India, across the Himalayas. Like what, what's supposed to happen here? It, it's a disaster. If there gets to be some war with China, it'll be awful. Whatever the victory is, is going to be Pyrrhic. Right, we'll be worse off for doing that. So um, it's, I was packing a lot of stuff in and it's, uh, uh, it's without notes. So if I said things incorrectly or didn't say them quite right, um, I, if you're a maritime power and you have this luxury, this you're insulated from the problem, uh, you have the capacity to stay out of the problem. I mean, you can make a big argument. The United States has been doing way too much FaceTime in the Middle East. Like why, right? Why do you have to be there? And that's a whole other um, conversation. But the story is we do not make all the choices in the world. Other people make choices. So, if China makes a really bad choice, um, our typical response is just simply say, we won't trade with you or whatever. But currently what's going on with China is they're getting into all of these dust-ups with India. And as far as one can tell, it's the Chinese who are provoking these things. As far as one can tell, it's hard to know. And I, I may be totally wrong. And, um, so if China just stays home and uh, stays there, why on earth would we ever want to get into a war with them? On the other hand, we do want to cooperate with India and Vietnam and Australia and Japan and other neighbors to enforce uh, rules that protect us all. For instance, China has claimed islands in the South China Sea that are not its to have. It has then built uh, bases on these islands, destroying reefs, so that it is the most disastrous environmental event in our lifetimes. They've killed the South China Sea. Greenpeace hasn't had the guts to go in there and report on, uh, 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 it, you, they've just destroyed the spawning grounds. It's, it's awful. 
but China has just done this and they don't quit. They keep wanting more stuff. And of course, the, um, the, its neighbors are getting upset. So we'll, there'll be international discussions and going back to what I said originally about the Britons, the preferred instrument of uh, national power is diplomacy, negotiations, economics, but you have to be prepared for the worst case scenario. It's um, highly be a disaster if it happens. It will be awful. Yeah, I mean, the environmental impact of island building in the South China Sea is terrible. I, I'm an environmentalist, I'm opposed to it. But the idea that I'm gonna fight a war with China yeah. uh, over this, it, it's no, there's just zero chance uh, right, that that's it, a worthwhile. But Well, you're assuming that you have all the cards to play. If North Korea, as part of regime death, or Xi Jinping, as part of regime death, launched a nuclear weapon that blew up Los Angeles, it would be very difficult for our country not to do anything. Uh, the passions elicited by that one uh, would lead to probably really stupid decision making. As just, you know, we think we got bipartisan, uh, what is it, uh, partisan politics? Oh, put a nuke on LA. <laughs> And it'll be it'll be a completely different world. And one of the things to be aware of is the United States doesn't make all the decisions. Other people make decisions and they can make horrendous ones. You I mean, look at North Korea. The guy's starving everybody there. It's the 21st century. What's going on? It is going on. And there's no good solution to it. It's awful. Mm -hmm. So I just, it's, um, you need to think about worst case scenarios and then you try working on the other ones as well, but you need to consider them because if you don't consider them, you have no ability to present, prevent them or to minimize their effects. All right, I wanna leave a little bit of time uh, for you to respond to Fritz Heidson who's been waiting patiently in his as usual rather romantic location. Uh, Fritz, could you ask your question? And I'm afraid it'll be the last one of today, or happy, because your questions are always good. All right, well, thank you, fair enough. You, you made a comment, and it was a passing comment. And I would may have let that go, but then Professor Desch hit you with a question, which I thought was really quite good. And it's, how are we viewing the US? Okay, we're not viewing it as a maritime power, uh, but is this partly, reality partly perception and i and i want to hone in on the perception because of your comment and that was about it i think it was about the lack of teaching and awareness of naval issues or maritime issues and i start to think about it you your books i know your books well because you published all my colleagues right down the line bob schneller milan vega wade dudley Edmeralda, all these all retired i think at this point you had East Carolina under Mike Palmer and, and before him, um, Bill Still. Mike Palmer's gone. I don't know if East Carolina even has much of a maritime program anymore. Uh, you used to have a secretary of the Navy like John Lehman. I can't think of one since then who really did a lot for the Navy. Um, the Naval Historical Center, not sure that it's quite what it used to be. Uh, and then you think about the historians. You probably hear this all the time. I hear it in every day, pretty much. If you're working on early Cold War, the Air Force, tens of thousands of documents, what do you need? The Navy, oh, good luck if you're going to get anything out of them. 
So there seems to be all these impediments that are there to creating any, any sense of the US as a naval power, as a maritime power, and the significance of it. So I, I, I'm curious, how are you looking at it at the Naval War College? Are there institutions and people out there still supporting the notions of the US as a naval or maritime power? And this is gonna be very important when it comes to shipbuilding costs and things like this in the future. Love to get your take on this. Well, on the documents about the Navy, when I was at the National Archives in their big reading room, it was fascinating. It, it divides in half between all the diplomatic or the civilian half of the archives. And then there's the military half. They're like two separate rooms where the reference books are or the finding aids. And then you look at the finding aids and it's all about army and to a lesser extent air force. And there's hardly anything in the Navy. You know why? Because the Navy stuff's still relevant to our national security. Uh, you don't even think about this. Um, I didn't get into this. Our defense is nuclear submarines. That's our defense. That's why people do not mess with us. It's a naval defense. How do we win the Cold War? Uh, the so a, a piece of it is the Soviets felt that their second strike capability was absolutely at risk. This is a whole other topic. So mm -hmm. it is really crucial to our national defense, et cetera. And then there's a greater problem. So I'm a historian. The field of history has died over this, uh, my career. Historians have been intolerant of each other. Social history, women's history, it's all important, but um, military history has been eliminated. Diplomatic history has been eliminated. There isn't enough economic history. There needs to be more religious history. There needs to be more intellectual history. You need to do the whole thing. And then I think there's another piece is I spent hours grading papers and I do it because as an undergraduate at Harvard, my professors did not deign to provide really full feedback. And the graduate students, I'm not clear they knew how to provide full feedback. I provide full feedback to my students. It takes me hours. And I think the professors in the humanities have not done what they're supposed to. And if you do, if you welcome colleagues who disagree with you and, you spend your time teaching the kids about analytical thinking. All of our papers at the War College require, a, in our, my department, a thesis and uh, your points of argument, your evidence, but then you've got to have a counter argument and it cannot be a throwaway. For instance, right. on an issue like gun control, I don't care which side of that argument you sit on. Whatever it is, that's your thesis, but then your counter argument had better be good because whatever you think about guns, there are very smart people who totally disagree with you. And you need to lay it out, honestly, full data. And then you rebut saying, this is why I come to the conclusion I do. And teach real analytical skills. And this is why history needs to be resurrected as a discipline of teaching the kids who are gonna go off to medical school or business school, these analytical skills. Hey, maybe they won't major in history, but get them at least to do a minor in it and make it useful, but it has to do with a lot of grudge work. In fact, the work I hate doing the most is grading papers, but it's, what, it's what's most valuable. It's how you pass the baton to the next generation of teaching them how to write. And I get it that not all the kids pay attention to the comments that you spent hours writing on, writing up, but it's really crucial. And um, uh, we, we got a country where people believe in lizard people. There's a real problem. It's important. Like 
The other thing I would pass to you, um, we're in a big team teach talk, a team talk course where I am. And my understanding in civilian academia is you don't get credit for it. If I were uh, much younger and at a civilian institution, I would love to team teach a course two, two semesters with all sorts of wonderful colleagues where you split up the lectures and split up the seminars and it would be the history of American institutions and it would highlight individuals. So educational institutions, juridical, financial, you name it. Be useful for everybody to understand where their country comes from. And then to make it interesting for the kids, I would highlight key individuals. You can't figure out who all of them are. And in a way they become um, mentors for the students to look up to is maybe that's me in the future of getting the next generation going. But it's um, the way I learned to lecture is by watching my colleagues lecture. The way I learned, learned to teach is team teaching with them. And um, you all have everything at your fingertips. You have the big library, the wonderful colleagues who are just down the hallway. And now you've got Zoom so you can poach people from other campuses to do a little cameo. Uh, the discipline of history is really important. And it used to be like bankers and things. Most of those guys would be majoring in history no longer. Well, it's time to take back the field. All right, on that rousing note, we have exhausted our time for today, but that was edifying and excellent. And um, please join me in thanking Professor Payne for her wonderful presentation today. Thank you for attending. It's a real treat to be with you. Bye everybody. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash NDISC forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.